Well, good morning again. Let me thank you all for being here today. If this is uh, your first time with us here online visiting Restoration, we're glad to have you. If uh, you've been with us for any amount of time, we are equally glad to have you today. And uh, this is Easter Sunday. We'll get to that in a moment here, I promise. But I, I want to share a couple of things with you guys. One is, uh, is a tradition we have at our church. And I know some of you are out there watching right now saying, um, who is that guy speaking? Because I've been wearing a hoodie and a Yankee hat for a couple of weeks. And I want you to know I'm going to give a shout out to Rick Wells. He encouraged me to put a tie on. The rule of restoration in my life is Christmas and Easter, Jesus gets a tie. So today, we want to sort of show our ultimate and absolute love and respect for Jesus. And uh, you're welcome for the tie. I hate this thing, but I do it because I love you all. All right. Now, today, today's interesting because I, I sort of want to, I want to, I want to begin today with the very same thing I ended last week telling you. And that is Easter for many of us. I know for me, I've, I've been a Christian uh, for a little over 20 years. I became a believer in the 90s. And I can tell you that this is, without question, the most unique Easter that I've ever been a part of, whether just being a Christian or, or serving in a vocational capacity as a pastor. And I'm saying this to you now, not in a negative way, but I actually think in a very positive way. And here's how I, I want to frame the discussion that we're going to have this morning. This Easter is unlike any other, in large part because it's, at least in my lifetime, it's the one that is probably most like what is happening in the scripture we're going to be looking at today. Uh, a couple of years ago, my niece had said to me that, uh, in sort of joking, but it was a satirical but sort of a true way, that for, for churches in America, Easter Sunday is kind of like Super Bowl Sunday. Uh, it's the biggest level of production. Uh, everything is sort of as grand and magnanimous as it can be. And, and I'm not saying anything negative against that, but there, there's a, it's kind of an irony in the fact that if you look at Easter in the first century world that was going on, the attitudes and emotions were, were very different. You know, we've had the benefit of celebrating Easter for a couple of thousand years now, the resurrection of Jesus. But in the Easter narratives, the story before the crucifixion, during and after, what you find is that the, the emotions of the world were, were, were pretty much like where we are today. There was a lot of confusion, there was a lot of anxiety, uh, there was fear, there was disbelief, there was doubt, lots of things were going on. And so I want to encourage you, before we have our opening sort of salutation of He is Risen, I want you to not think about Easter Sunday today from the angle of, you know, we're all in our homes, somewhat ironically scattered, as Jesus said in this passage in John 16. I want you to realize that we, we have a unique opportunity this year, perhaps more than ever, if you want my opinion, to really feel and experience what Easter was like for those who were looking at and hearing about for the first time the resurrection of Jesus. And so at our church, and we're not alone in this, we do have a sort of a customary way that we begin each Easter Sunday, and that is by proclaiming, He is risen, and I will proclaim that, and then I'm used to hearing you all say, He is risen indeed. And so I'll do this slowly, and uh, when I do it slowly, I will uh, give you a couple of moments to respond. And uh, you know, you can comment on this as we're speaking. I, I would encourage you to do so, to really uh, become as integral a part of this time that we have together this morning, whether it be through the declaration of song in your living rooms or your study of the word with me now, or even just punching in comments and saying hello. Um, we want to realize that Easter is, Easter is Easter regardless of what is going on in the world around us. But I want you to know from the bottom of my heart that I really believe 
Um, we are going to feel today, or do feel today, almost exactly what the disciples did in the surrounding world in the first century. And so, I would like to proclaim to you that he is risen. He, he is, is risen, risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. That's awesome. So I'm sure all of you are saying that, and our skeleton crew staff standing right behind this recording device screamed out uh, the same thing you are saying, because we want to give thanks that Jesus is no longer in the grave. Uh, he is risen and risen indeed. And so today you know is Easter Sunday. And because of the significance of what we call the Holy Week in Christianity, especially during what I would consider to be an incredibly bizarre season of life, I, I thought it rather fitting over these past weeks, and certainly culminating today, to celebrate Jesus' resurrection um, by really talking about what Jesus has done for us. Each year when I, when I share our Easter message, I usually alternate years. One year I might do something that's a little more theological in the sense of us understanding what Jesus' resurrection meant and why he was able to do what he was able to do. Other years I might focus more on, on the spiritual and the emotive. Uh, this year I sort of want to have a combination of both. I want to share why Jesus' resurrection uh, is so significant and how it brings hope to our lives. Truthfully, like I said last week, the, the promises of Jesus Christ are able to bring joy to our lives in any circumstance, big or small, good or bad. And so to, to do so this morning, we're going to continue looking at John chapter 16. Our worship leader, Abe, just read the verses to you a moment ago. We'll sort of bounce around them this morning, but that text is really the primary way we're going to uh, discuss Easter today. And just like last weekend when I spoke to you all, I want you to know that this teaching we have this morning is truly an anchor. It's, it's one of the very many promises that Jesus has given us. And these promises are like the strong root systems of incredibly, uh, incredibly able-bodied trees, like magnificent oak trees that, that look beautiful and healthy from the ground up are beautiful and healthy because they have such an anchored root system. Or if you need some type of a water analogy, these promises that Jesus gives us are truly the things we can anchor our hearts to during the times of life that are unstable, or maybe maybe we're a little disheveled in what's going on right now. Maybe you're like me, and uh, my wife can tell you I'm a hyper-gregarious, I'm a super extrovert. So like for three days, being locked up in my house was really fun, but after that, I'm, I'm going crazy. And we're all probably dealing with certain emotions, but I want us to know that our emotions can be anchored in something that transcend emotion and actually can enable us to enjoy peace and hope. And knowing this really matters, because in the verses we're looking at today, Jesus is speaking to his disciples. And his disciples are, are gathered with him on the night before his arrest and impending crucifixion. This is really when, uh, in the biblical sense, things start to go south for everybody. Jesus is no longer a celebrated hero, as he was a week ago. Now he is a, a hunted criminal by first century standards. And his disciples are gathered with him, somewhat naturally, a little bit confused, somewhat afraid. And I think the most ironic part of this passage is that they think they understand the promises of Jesus more than they actually do. And Jesus points this out, as I will hear in a few moments. And so this troubled sentiment, this is sort of what's surrounding the text we're looking at today. And that trouble increases as we continue to read on in the Gospel of John, because we know Jesus is eventually arrested, given a mock trial, and then crucified uh, for the sins of the world. What, what man meant for evil, like Abe just said a moment ago, uh, God meant for good. He did something profoundly amazing out of the way Jesus was mistreated in the first century. And so this troubled sentiment is truly 
uh, is truly a prevalent thing in our world right now as we continue to deal with the COVID virus and the way that it has disrupted the normal rhythms of our lives. That's what's happened here with the disciples. The, the normalcy of their lives has been disrupted. And the reality of this virus has shown us, if for nothing less, that the, the normal things we expect to never change in our lives can change in a moment's notice. What was once a common or stable rhythm for the last 10 years of our lives, six weeks ago, changed dramatically. And what we talked about last week, in large part anyways, is how the stability rhythms of life that we can often prescribe our ultimate hope in, we can, we can give the hearts, our hearts affection to, these, these forms of stability may not necessarily be as stable as we once thought they were. You can see this in just about every aspect of society today, uh, from the political spectrum to the financial spectrum, even just to the relational spectrum. Things can change in a heartbeat. And that's why Jesus' teaching here is so important, especially on this Easter Sunday. Because in a moment's notice, here, he reminds his disciples that their world is about to be turned upside down. And in, in spite of that, they still have not just the responsibility, but the authority and the power to continue living out the mission of God, to continue functioning in a way that honors God and certainly spreads the goodness of God in their world. And so the troubles of the world... There, there have always been troubles in this world. Uh, this season we have our own. But every epoch of humanity has had a trouble they have dealt with. And that's why I love this teaching, because it's, it's timelessly applicable. Uh, humanity will always have troubles. Ours is a very obvious one today. It's the continued expansion of this virus. But the beauty of the anchor promise we're going to talk about today is that Jesus' words, his truth, his promises transcend our troubles. The face of troubles might change, but the root of how we endure them does not. And so to deal with these troubles, Jesus gives his followers this unassailable, that's the word I like to use, meaning nothing can touch it or destroy it. It's an unassailable promise of joy and peace. And then he goes on to help them understand how they can actually experience this joy and peace. Because keep in mind, there's a, there's a big difference between hearing a promise with your head, uh, Jesus provides you joy and peace, and actually experientially feeling that with your heart, with your soul. And that's what I want to teach on today, because the uncommon peace and joy that Jesus promises his disciples during a very difficult time in their lives, during a very challenging time for our lives today, is a promise with roots so deep and secure that when we truly believe them, when we cast the affections of our heart on the promises of Jesus, they do allow us to withstand the pressures of life when they come, no matter what they are. And I want to be clear here that they don't necessarily remove the challenges of life, but they give us the ability to endure them. So remember, Jesus makes this promise of peace, joy, and hope, not just while the disciples are struggling. He says this to them in a moment when he is struggling. I want you to remember, Jesus is, is passing on peace to his followers right before his, his false uh, arrest and, and crucifixion. So he's not theoretically or philosophically addressing suffering right now. He is speaking about troubles to his disciples as he is about to endure a great set of them himself. The impending reality of his crucifixion is on his mind, yet he's able to offer this promise of hope to his disciples and rely on it himself during the circumstance. And this is a hope that can only be found in the promise of Jesus which we said last week was understanding that our ultimate worth and value in life, we cannot look to circumstances for our ultimate hope and stability because circumstances are like sand. They shift with the winds, good or bad. 
If you want to endure through circumstances, if you want to have hope and joy through them, then you have to be anchored to something that transcends the circumstance, which is the truth of Jesus. So true peace, unassailable peace, is found in the truth that God loves us. And for those who look to Jesus, He, he calls us His own. You, the declaration God has made upon His sons and daughters on this earth cannot be changed. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be removed from our lives. And it truly is the, the authority upon which we can not just see troubles, but persevere through them. And to, to get a really practical sense of what I mean by trouble and peace, I, I want to revisit the quote that I shared with you last week, because several of you after worship had actually messaged me asking me for a, a copy of it. And so I share that quote with you and would be willing to do so today if you want. But just for, for today's teaching, I actually want to, I want to revisit it. I want to reframe how we ended last week by talking about a, a, a quote from a, a scholar named Gary Burge that really describes the tension Jesus is addressing with his disciples and certainly the tension maybe many of us are feeling right now in the middle of this pandemic. And so he says this, he's describing the evidence of this promise in a Christian's life, what this promise physically, spiritually, and emotionally looks like when we believe it not just cognitively with our minds, but experience it with our hearts and, and begin to live it out with our soul. Here's what he says. It is essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble in life do not negate one another. The peace of Jesus is a condition of the heart that takes the uncertainties and struggles of this world seriously, but like a seagull riding the surface of a turbulent sea, is able to climb swells and drop into valleys without being ruined by worry. I want to read that to you one more time. It is essential that we keep in mind that peace and trouble in life do not negate one another. The peace of Jesus is a condition of the heart that takes the uncertainties and struggles of this world seriously. It means we don't act like they're not happening. But just like a seagull, you know, we live next to the beach and have all seen this, a seagull riding the surface of a turbulent sea uh, is able to climb the swells and drops into those valleys without being ruined by worry. It isn't that we are without worry, it's that we are able to sort of move through them because we trust in a greater hope. And this leads me to the only truth, the, the one main idea I want to share with you this morning. The reason you can have Jesus' peace when faced with troubles is because he's already overcome them. I want to refer to a past tense promise Jesus makes his disciples before great troubles hit their lives. That past tense promise is as applicable today as it was in this book. It's a past promise fulfilled that has an immediate meaning on our lives. John 16, 32 through 33. I'll reread this section to you. Jesus says, this is after the disciples sort of rather arrogantly believe that they have this whole paradigm figured out. Jesus says to them, do you now believe? And Jesus replied, a time is coming and in fact has come when you will be scattered, each to your own home. A rather famous statement, I thought, today, considering the fact that we are all in the same state. And he says, you will leave me alone. In other words, some of you are going to lose hope when you are no longer in my presence. Yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. And he goes on to say, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. He's balancing this tension between feeling alone and theologically knowing that we are not alone, but we are present uh, in, in Jesus. When we are in Christ, not only are we permanently in his presence, but we are bound to our brothers and sisters in Jesus in the same way. 
And so while we might feel alone during times of trial or trouble, the truth of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection means we are never alone. And we do need to, to mentally know that, to begin to experience it in our heart. And so this is an important promise, especially to those of you who are currently dealing with worldly troubles. And it's pretty fair to say that in our world today, in some form or fashion, just about every person on earth is enduring some form of trial or trouble. And in these verses, Jesus is forewarning them that they are not going to have the time to have a Bible study about, about trouble. They're not going to have a time to sit down and sketch out a plan. Instead, what's happening here is he's giving them a, a, an encouragement and a warning. He's letting them know that their trust and hope, what they look to to sustain themselves in life, is going to be greatly tested in the next 24 hours when Jesus is taken from them and crucified. They're not even going to have the ability to meet after this because some of these disciples are going to be hunted for their lives. Like we said last week, one minute, the seas of life are incredibly calm. The very next day, the winds kick up and they rage. And at least in my opinion, one of the most interesting aspects of this teaching in John, one of the most human aspects of it, is that when the disciples hear Jesus say all this stuff, in a sort of arrogant way, they, they tell Jesus that they got this stuff figured out. They say, you know, in verses 29 and 30, well, you're, you're speaking clearly now. You're speaking plainly now. We, we get it. You've spoken. Uh, trouble's going to come. Trials are going to come. And we don't really have any more questions about this stuff. Because, because when you have told us that your promised peace is going to sustain us through these things, we just believe it. We know that this is true now. We get it. Life can be hard, but God is good. You're never going to leave us. When things get tough in the world, all we have to do is remember your peace. Amen. And it's sort of like they're ready to move on. But the irony here is Jesus is not ready for them to move on. Because his response to this, his question, do you believe now, is somewhat satirical. He's sort of setting them up to understand that the very things they say they believe, they, they do not believe with their hearts because they're not going to experience these promises in the next moments of their lives. Jesus responds to them by telling them, you, you actually don't get this. And here's why. Because we know, and he knew, that they were all about to live like they had never heard of this guy named Jesus after he's arrested and crucified. This Jesus, whom they had followed for three years, whom they had committed their life to, he says in verse 31, Oh, do you believe now? This is more sarcastic than it is serious. Because when these troubles come, we know that the disciples are going to be scattered. And some of them will even deny Jesus. The furthest thing from their hearts is going to be the, the promise of peace in a safe room like they are in right now. The disciples are going to run for their lives. They're going to be scattered by the forces of this world. And some will act as if they never knew Jesus. The, the story of Peter. The beautiful thing about that is Jesus' grace is, is prevalent there. He restores him to himself. But we do know that the confidence they had in the Jesus in front of them was much less confident when Jesus was actually taken by the authorities and set up for this mock trial and eventually crucified. And there's a, a deeply human truth in this for us. It is entirely possible for us to think we believe and understand, you know, in the depths of our soul, the power and of the promises of God. But the true evidence of, of really knowing these things, I would say, has a lot less to do than our ability to sort of cognitively recite them. And it has much more to do with our ability to actually experience them. Because what the bullseye here is, is that when the troubles of the world come, like that seagull, we're, we're able to navigate them. We don't deny them. We don't ignore them. We don't bury our heads in the sand. We, with humble confidence, look to them and know 
that our God is the God of our circumstances. And what I want to say about a text today, our text today, and even the reality of Easter, is that Easter for, for the church should be less about a Super Bowl production experience and more about the real evidences of the fact that we believe what we celebrate today. When the trials come, because Jesus has overcome them, all of them, past tense, we should be able to be the types of people, not perfectly, but the types of people who don't fall apart when we endure trouble and trial. In other words, the evidence of our belief in this promise is going to be revealed in how we respond to trouble and trial. And for some of us, uh, this is a good question to ask ourselves this week. Maybe some of you have already done this diagnostic on your own heart, but I've had to think about what is it that I'm truly worried about in these moments? And where is it that, that I might be looking to Jesus a little less? Where is it where I'm telling him, you know, I got this stuff down. I got peace. I'm a pastor. I'm going to teach on this this Sunday. Uh, I've got it down. But where are the places in my life where my heart is a bit insecure? I don't say this so that we can all leave this teaching feeling somewhat discouraged. I say this because Jesus wants us to be encouraged. He wants us to fly like that seagull, not be buried in a wave. And in verse 28, Jesus gives the disciples four powerful reasons for why he was able to overcome the troubles of the world. In, in verse 28, we get like the summation of the whole story of Jesus, in a, pretty much in a sentence. But it's a sentence with, with four very distinct statements that I want to talk about. And this is where the, the theological reality of what Jesus says really matters. Because all the things I just told you Jesus said he can do, sustain us, be peace in our lives... They are, they are done. He is able to do them because of this statement. We believe Jesus is who he says he is. And what he says about himself here is very important to us understanding the why behind why we can trust in Jesus' promises during troubled or trial times. And these promises are as relevant to us today as they were to the disciples some 2,000 years ago. Remember, he's, he's sharing this with the disciples so that they will garner the same type of hope, peace, joy, and trust that he wants his people to have in the, in the modern world and in the world that will follow us. And what he says is, I came from the Father, I entered the world, now I am leaving the world and then going back to the Father. I'll say that one more time. He tells the disciples, before any of this is happening, at least some of it, I came from the Father, I entered the world, now I am leaving the world, and I'm going back to the Father. And in this verse, he, he sort of encapsulates what he has done. He came from the Father and entered the world, and he's now foreshadowing what he's about to do. He is about to go to the cross and eventually leave the world. These, these four declarations explain what Jesus had to do so that we could be restored to our Heavenly Father. So that we could actually live in, tap into, experience these amazing promises of peace, joy, love, and hope that Christ has made to us, not just in the Gospel of John, but throughout the whole New Testament. If you want to experience Jesus' peace like this, and I, I hope you do, I hope fear and anxiety is not your A-game in life, and if it is, be humble enough to, to look to God and to say that this is where my heart is troubled. Can you bring peace and joy to the places where fear and anxiety rule me? There is no judgment in that. Just know that this teaching is given so that we can know that that is not God's desire for us, and the very nature of what Jesus said and did is the evidence of this. So I want you to put your, your spiritual thinking caps on with me for a few moments this morning, because what I want to do is briefly walk through these four declarations and do a little bit of theology here. 
to better understand how God has overcome the troubles of the world, and practically speaking, why we can too. Because these two things are connected. Our ability to overcome trouble and trial today is rooted in the fact that Jesus says, do not be troubled. I have already overcome your troubles. And in these brief but powerful words, he is foreshadowing his death, burial, and resurrection. Please don't mistake my brevity in these four answers, because I, I could probably speak for, uh, I could probably do a whole message on each one. But today, my, my desire was to zero out and give us the big picture, the, the view from the clouds, if you will, as to why hope is what should be the crown on our hearts right now, not fear or anxiety. And so the first thing Jesus says is this. He says, I came from the Father. I came from the Father. What a short statement with, a, with an eternal implication. Now, over the years, I have taught this truth at our church. There's, there's, there's more elongated messages on this if you ever want to listen to them on our website. But I want to tell you or explain to you why this is such a significant statement. This is one of the reasons why he is arrested. is because he's making statements like this. And what I've taught about uh, when we've taught on this idea of Jesus coming from the Father over the years is that Jesus here is referring to the Christian belief we, we call his pre-existence and his divinity. And what we mean by this is that Jesus isn't just like God. He isn't a God or a type of God. He isn't a God lowercase g. This statement here, his declaration is that he is not just like his Father in Heaven. He actually is his Father in Heaven. The two are one and the one are two. And when we expand that to the Holy Spirit, which we won't talk at length about today, we come to this concept of the Holy Trinity. The three are one and the one are three. And this is a pretty powerful statement. Because what Jesus is doing here is he's, he's grounding everything he's about to say in the authority of God. Not just his Father in Heaven, but himself. He's beginning to make the shift from, from gentle lamb to roaring lion. And he goes on to say this, this statement is authoritatively a declaration that he is not just like God. He has always been God. He has always been in existence just like God. The way that I like to say this, at least the, the clearest way for me to understand it is, I like to say there has never been a time when Jesus was not. There has never been a time when Jesus was not. This is what we mean by his pre-existence. And this can be a hard concept for us to grasp because in our lives, everything has a beginning and an end. Everything. Even my teaching today has a beginning and will have an end. But the truth here is that Jesus has no beginning or no end. And neither does his Father in heaven. His pre-existence teaches us that he is not just the, he's not always just been, but he's also the creator of this world. We refer to him as, as our creator God. And because of that, the world, and I don't mean this in a derogatory way, I mean it in the way that Jesus means it. The world is literally the footstool that he rests his feet upon as he sits upon the throne of heaven. He's spoken into existence. And he has been given all authority over all the matters of this world. And the amazing thing about this truth is that uh, there is going to come a time... You know, we talk about uh, Jesus' return often when we speak of, of Easter. We know that his resurrection uh, was the evidence of his first coming. But we as Christians, this is what we celebrate at Christmas time, we are waiting upon his second advent, the time when, when he returns to earth for the second time and takes us to be with him. Scripture teaches us that there is going to come a time when everything in the world will declare that Jesus is the Lord. We don't live in an era now where that's the case. We, we have this amazing freedom 
to sort of choose our own paths, to, to look at the person of Jesus. Maybe some of you are doing it right now. You're, you're looking at Jesus, or maybe you're visiting with us for the first time, and you're hearing these claims that seem somewhat audacious, but you're saying, you know what, I, I need to think about this. Jesus is God. He's all authority. He's, he's never not been. This is a good thing to think about, because Jesus gives us the freedom to look at him and then make this choice on whether or not we want to begin believing or trusting in the promises here. But at some point, when Jesus comes back, the, the, the lordship of Jesus will be declared to the whole world. And there will no longer be an option. For all of eternity, Jesus has been reigning with his Father in heaven like this. He has been the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Except for this, this one brief period in time, which is the second part of his statement. He comes from the Father, he says, but then he says, I, I actually then entered the world. And this is the message of Christmas, what we call the doctrine of the Incarnation. Jesus was with God before there was time, through all things, and at this moment in history that we're discussing now, he leaves the heavens and he comes to earth for this roughly 33 years. This all-knowing, all-powerful, pre-existent creator God we just spoke about, the God of all authority, whom the world is his footstool, what is beautiful about this teaching in the life of Jesus is that he takes this authority and he does not use it to abuse hurt or take advantage of people, he takes this authority and he uses it, all of his power, to bless humanity. When he humbles himself and becomes a servant by walking amongst us, by becoming literally one of us, by the Son of God becoming man and living a life just like we do. And this is what's, what's amazing about the, it, it almost seems uh, somewhat paradoxical, the, the power and the humility of God, that, that a God like this would use all of his authority not to, to, to benefit himself, but to benefit others. And this is why our God is unlike any other God you will find in the current world of God, lowercase g, options. Whether that is literally some God, or some experience, or some physical item, or material item, there is no one like our God. For this very reason, because He lived like one of us. He suffered like one of us. He endured all the troubles and trials of life, including death, like we will all experience one day. Why does he do this? He does this because of his love for us. He became one of us so that we would know, in a, in a passage like this, Jesus is never just speaking to us about the troubles we face in this life as, as some abstract thing. And believe me, I love discussing the philosophy of hurt and suffering and pain. There's a well of infinite thought connected to these ideas. But Jesus does not want what he's telling us here today to be reduced to some physical or academic exercise. What we learn from this passage in the life of Jesus is that he wants us to know he can uniquely speak into our lives, yours and mine, as we go through trial and trouble, because he went through trial and trouble. And so rather than using his authority in an abusive way to exempt himself from the troubles we so often face in life, he actually uses his power to ensure that he suffers like we do, eventually going to the cross. And this is one of the reasons the pre-existent Jesus had to enter the earth. It is why he walked amongst us. And Jesus goes on to say, he says, I've come from the Father, and uh, I, I come from the Father, and now I've, I've walked amongst you. And his third clause is, I entered the world, here's why. He came to the world, entered the world, so that he could leave it. In other words, his time here was not meant to be permanent. It was part of a much greater plan God had for the redemption of the world. And here Jesus tells us that he entered the world and lived like one of us. 
because he ultimately he had to die like one of us. His, his departure from this world does not happen. His ascension does not happen until he dies and is resurrected. And this is, the, this is a very clear, somewhat of a prophetic reference of what is about to happen. The first two clauses sort of give us the summation of what's already happened. But here Jesus is beginning to remind his disciples of what he actually came to do. He is referencing the fact that he is about to go to the cross for the sins of the world. The crimes of sin that humanity has committed against God. And if we're going to be honest and humble, and we should be in a day like this, the, the injustices that we often commit towards each other, no matter how big or small they are, whether they are major crimes or, or small white lies, all of these things were so serious. They were so destructive, destructive to the love that God had for humanity and, and the desires that he has for our world. They were so destructive that something had to be done to mediate this reality. And times like this are, are often interesting to me because... Uh, a pandemic, a crisis, living through hurricanes here in Florida, oftentimes what happens is, is we, we see the best and the worst of humanity in moments like this. And what I want to say with a, with a teaching like this is that Jesus' death for us is meant for the best and the worst of humanity. There is no righteousness that we can have that, that can please God in a way that, that can earn his love, nor is there any unrighteousness we can have that can keep us disconnected from God. If we understand the truth of what Jesus is saying here, that the problem of sin was so serious in the world that it could only be addressed in full by God himself. The, the level of sacrifice was so serious that it required God's intervention to, to repay this penalty. One that we often attempt to pay on our behalf. We, you know, we might feel guilty or shame ourselves. Humanity has its own rhythms for how we try to repent, if you will, for the things that have gone wrong in our lives. But if you're living in this mode right now of shame or guilt or defeat, I want you to know that you should seriously think about your life. But recognize that Jesus came to set us free from those things. He came to fulfill the obligation we had before God in these areas. Because God knew our efforts alone could not remedy the myriad of injustices our world has seen, is seeing, and will see. And this is why Jesus leaves his throne in heaven. Not to benefit himself in any way, but rather, Paul tells us in Philippians, he, he emptied himself. He bankrupted himself. And what he did is he took the yoke of our guilt, the yoke of our shame, the burden of our sin upon himself. He took this on the cross and he made this incredible sacrificial offering to God. He took our sin and offered us the grace and the goodness of God. And he once and for all, past tense statement with a present tense promise, he once and for all defeated the power of death and sin. And when we speak about death and sin, what I'd like to say is that the the power of sin has been dealt with, but, but the presence of sin is still pre present in our world. And so a teaching like this doesn't mean that our troubles go away. It just means that we still live in this in-between period where what Jesus has done uh, through his resurrection, we can experience the benefits of that promise and hope now. But there is a day coming, which he alludes to here in a moment. There's a day coming when there will be no more sin, period where the idea of an injustice won't even register in our head, we won't even have a concept in our minds or our hearts of what they are. Once Jesus fulfills God's requirements, the problem that sin has wreaked on the world, once he bore that weight on our behalf, Jesus says to his disciples, or is saying to his disciples, to his disciples that his time on earth is up. Now he's got to go. And that's where we come to the last part of this verse and the resurrection of Jesus 
we celebrate today. The last thing he says is, uh, now I am going back to the Father. And keep in mind, we today know what this means because we've had 2,000 years to, to process the Easter story. But for the disciples in this room, this is a foretelling of something they don't even know is going to happen yet. And this is truly where the doctrine, the belief of Jesus' resurrection and his ascension, these, these two beliefs we tend to focus more heavy on uh, during the season of Lent and the celebration of Easter, here Jesus tells us that he is going to have to die for the sins of the world. But his death is not permanent. It's a, it's a step, if you will, the grave, that not only uh, in a very spiritual way, but also in sort of a metaphorical way, symbolizes what's about to happen. He is about to conquer the grave for us physically, so that we can actually conquer the grave when we pass from the serpent to the next world. Nothing that happens in Jesus' life can, can hold him down. This is why it's important that we recognize he opens this statement with an, a claim of authority. I've come from the Father. And so what he says is, I'm going to be put in the grave, but it's going to be for three days. Because ultimately, I have authority over life and death. Nothing can hold me down. Simply put, he died so that we could live with the peace and hope of Jesus in our lives, in this life, right now, at this moment. And the promise of an eternity with Jesus in the next he sustains peace today and for forever. Because his resurrection is a foreshadowing of the promise of eternal life. I, mean, I have to be honest with you, um, I'm in my mid-40s now. My beard probably makes me look like I'm in my, my mid-50s with all these gray hairs. But this statement here, if you were to talk to me in my 20s, I would have been way more in inclined to want to focus on the first parts of this, this teaching. The ideas of what the present world holds and how Jesus works through them. And don't get me wrong, I still am. I think we as Christians have an, an incredible responsibility to be the light and the life of, of Christ on earth. But I can tell you as I've hit sort of the, the middle stage of my life, the reality of eternity has, has this, this portion of this teaching has, has illuminated a little more than it once was. Because you start to recognize that, that life is fragile, that youth can be fading or is fading. Uh, and that the very things that we maybe don't even think about in years down the road, the, the way we sort of might naively in our youth, and we've all been here, we might not think about ideas of eternity, they begin to matter more as we get closer to it. Or in the midst of a trial, the, the beauty and the reality of, of these teachings sort of, they swell up and they, they hit us uh, in a way that maybe they never hit our hearts prior. And so I can tell you more than ever the the idea of Christ's return, second coming, and the fact that we've been given not just the blessing of knowing Jesus in this life, but the permanency of knowing him in the next. That, that latter clause, with every passing day, becomes more of a hope for me, especially looking at the, the suffering in the world and the challenges of the world. There is something beautiful about the fact that a day is going to come when all death is eradicated, when all suffering is eradicated, when there are no more troubles and trials. And it all happens because of what we celebrate today. Jesus, Jesus comes out of the grave, and he shows us that he is victorious over every trouble, any trouble the world can bring to us, even death. And he must go back to his Father in order to complete this this sacrifice. So after he returns to the Father through his ascension, after we celebrate what we're doing today, that he's come out the grave, you know, in a, in a few weeks we will celebrate the fact that he goes back to his Father in heaven. 
And this is an important thing to know. It's how we're going to begin to wrap up. Because Jesus' declaration here, I would say, is another statement of authority. It's sort of like you have these two authority clauses, and in the middle, these amazing blessings of what Jesus has done for us. But, but these two clauses are why Jesus can fulfill the promises he has made to us. After he returns to his Father in heaven through his ascension, Scripture teaches us that he is at this very moment. He's not a slain lamb anymore. He is interceding on our behalf before God. He is working in the lives of us right now and, and the people of the world that are in him through the power of his Holy Spirit. He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father, which is a statement, it's a place, a position of authority, no longer as the slain lamb, but as the roaring lion. This is the God who views your troubles right now. He is no longer the slain and defeated lamb. He is the risen, resurrected Son of God, the roaring lion, working for God's glory and our good through the world, through this power of spirit in our lives. And so what this means on this day and every other day is our troubles, they are real. Don't, I'm not at all trying to give you some pie in the sky or bravado idea here that, that we should just power through troubles. I encourage you to persevere through them in the power of Jesus. Because what these, these verses teach us is that our troubles, no matter how significant they are, no matter how bad they are, they are truly the footstool of the power of Jesus Christ. And they only have the ability to rob us of our peace and joy if we permit them to. I like to say at our church that we have to see joy because God has already given it to us. We don't have to get it from God. These statements we read today and what Jesus has done for us teach us that God has given us everything already. We have his full love and his, his full power and his full joy. And while we might spend our days on this earth working these things out and growing in them, the truth is that God doesn't remove his joy from us. What happens is, is we let things rob joy from our hearts. And so it's very important that we recognize the solidification of what Jesus did on the cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection it was meant to do something very good for us. It was meant to put us on the offense in life. To be looking at the world knowing that, that behind us sits the host of heaven and the roaring lion. The, the, the God who was slain first for our sins and now helps us to, to persevere through them. It's a beautiful truth. And that's why the name of this teaching was entitled, or is entitled, But God is Meant It For Good. This is a theme throughout the Bible where God uses things that seemingly seem like troubles, and often are, he uses them for good if we're paying attention to, to, to the reasoning behind what God is doing. And that's even true of what's going on in our world right now. I'm in no way, you know, I, I've read the whole host of crazy Christianity this week that, that has said God is causing pandemics. And, you know, this is always a voice that emerges in the Christian community. It's a very small voice, but unfortunately it's, it's an irrational voice at times that I think tends to get more media coverage because thoughtful um, teachings, maybe like the one we're looking at today, are, are less sensational. The truth is that I don't believe that God has caused this, but I can tell you God can and will and wants to bring good out of this. And that is in how we love our neighbor. That's how we take the celebration of Easter, these powerful statements, and we say, you know what, even in the worst circumstances of, of the world, the worst troubles that the world can throw at us, we can still be the light and life of Christ, because Christ is in us. We can overcome those troubles because he has already done so. And that is why these powerful statements are why Jesus overcomes 
It's what we have to hope in. And so right now, if you're saying, listen, Anthony, I'm hearing this, uh, but this is, you know, I still feel like I can't win, or my job security is pretty unstable right now, or I know I've made jokes about toilet paper, but this is a real thing. Like, people don't have some of the necessary supplies they need to function in life normally. Whatever your stress point is, if you are the type of person who is able to meet that need, you should. And if you are a person suffering from a need, you should bring that up to somebody who you know that loves Jesus. But whether you're meeting needs or enduring them, there is a great hope for you in this. In some sense, what we've discussed today, the Easter story, to a very strong degree will reveal just how much we fully understand or do not understand what Jesus is saying about the promise that he's given us. And that is a good thing. If we are ruled by fear and anxiety, it likely means our hearts have been disconnected from this promise. Because your ability and my ability to overcome the troubles of this world has never been based on our ability alone. It has always been based on Jesus' work in the four areas we just spoke about. That power comes from what Jesus has already done for us, past tense, and is doing for us in the present tense. He has already overcome the troubles of this world. He has left sin in the grave. And this means that he's already defeated the troubles that you and I face today. And just like joy, his promise of joy, it is a past tense promise that we have to have applied to our lives today. We really do need to desire to experience these things. And we should ask God for his peace and hope if there are places in our lives where we are without it. Because the idea of just speaking about hope and joy on Resurrection Sunday, that, that's a low bar. What we want to do is fully experience the reality of what it means to dwell in the presence of the peace and the joy and the hope and the permanency of Jesus. And so as we close, I want to leave you with, with a writing that Paul gives us in the book of Romans. It's sort of like, at least in my opinion, the summation, not just of what we're talking about, it gives us the, the, the theological reality of what we just talked about. Paul references every single clause I just talked about in this verse in Romans. And he also gives us this amazing immediate hope of why they matter. So I leave you today with, with Romans 8, verses 31 through 35. If you have a Bible with you, read along. If not, pen this down and maybe meditate upon it this week. Romans 8, 31 through 35. Paul says this. He says, What then shall we say in response to these things? And these things here, my goodness, referring to a lot of things. But for the sake of argument today, let's just say all the things going on in our lives, good and bad. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He, speaking of God, who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. How will he not also, along with him, graciously give us all things? In verse 33, he says, Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then can condemn? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. That's that power position I just mentioned to you. And then Paul asks the question I leave you with this week. Who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble, or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword, or fill in the blank on whatever hardship you look at now? What can separate you from the love of God? How does Paul answer this question? Can anything separate us? Any trouble or trial 
separate us from the love of God? The answer is no. That's what Paul teaches us here. Because our circumstances are not what dictate our relationship with Jesus. Our, uh, our love for Jesus and His love for us is what is able to secure us. It's what transcends our circumstances. Nothing can separate us from the power and peace of Jesus because Jesus has already overcome the grave and the troubles and the trial of the world. And so this morning, I encourage you to, to believe in this truth, to rest in it if you are resting in something that is not this truth, to give your life to Jesus for the first time, to know in this world that you will face troubles, but for those of us that are in Jesus, you do not face them alone. Scattered we might be right now, like the disciples are about to be, but alone we are not. Because the presence of Jesus in us has bound us all together in this life and for the next life. And so if you have questions about this or what it means to, to follow Christ, if you have questions about anything I've said today at our church, we really value two-way dialogue. And in an environment like this, it's, it's very challenging to have two-way dialogue. But we want you to know that this teaching today is not the end of our Easter sermon. It's the beginning of a discussion that our leadership would like to have with you this week, your community groups and our, our time together. And so if you have questions about anything that was said today, you can use that comment forum to, to talk to us. You can email us, call us, text us. You can speak to me directly about these things. We, we want to address your questions, encourage you in your followership of Jesus, and certainly address the objections you might have to this. And so I leave you with the question that I leave you with every single week as we exit and move into our time of response at, at restoration. What is Jesus saying to you about the power of his resurrection? And what is it you will do when you, when you go on back into your world this week with him? Pray with me. Father in heaven, thank you for this, for this day. And I pray that we would never just let Easter be a day. That we would recognize that Easter was meant to to form a new lifestyle, one defined by power and victory and hope and joy and perseverance. And I pray, Lord, that we would look to nothing but you when we talk about these things in this world, that we would settle for nothing less than you, because what you offer us, a relationship with the living God, is so much more powerful than any temporal pleasure this world can give us. So today I pray you would open our eyes for the first time as we look to Jesus. Open our eyes in new and meaningful ways if we already look to Jesus. Encourage our hearts where they are troubled or suffering, Father. Help us to be joy in life if we are the encouraged brothers and sisters of Jesus today. I pray that your goodness and grace through your people and your truth, God, would flood our circles of influence wherever we go this week. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Now listen, before we uh, wrap up, I want to mention two things to you. Uh, the first is that we have a, a, a fellowship, a social, if you will, on April 15th this week. We're going to have a, what we're calling a virtual spaghetti dinner. And the idea here is that we want you to join us for a big church supper on Zoom. Uh, cook your spaghetti, or whatever you want. Remember, I'm an Italian, so I'm going to want to hear your methodology of how you've cooked it. We want to get together just like this and have a supper together this week. And we're going to do that through Zoom. And so for security reasons, what we're asking you to do is, if you would like to be a part of this, please call or message the office and we'll give you the meeting code for that. We don't want to publicize this broadly just to make sure that, that it's only folks that we actually want in this room uh, that are in this room. So invite a friend, but please contact us if you want to join us for that supper this Wednesday. And I also want to mention to you 
um, about giving and generosity during these times. And so uh, I am ever thankful for the generosity of our church. It continues to amaze me time and time again. Uh, for the better part of 10 years, you have supported the mission and ministry of Jesus Christ at Restoration. And so I encourage you to, uh, to continue in that vein, especially during a time where it is likely that we'll see increases in benevolence and need. We're trying to meet those needs and certainly are proactively looking into a few of them. So if you have a, a, a desire to be generous or to serve your neighbor, please let us know about that. Uh, our giving information can be found on our website and certainly uh, on our, our Facebook page. You can mail checks into the office or give online, as a great many of you do. And that's where our priority is, is to continue to be the light and life of Christ through our time, our talents, and our treasures. And remember, when I speak of generosity, it includes our church family, but cannot be limited to it. So in the spontaneous areas that God gives you in life to bless your neighbor in whatever way that is, please be open to those ways in these weeks that follow. When there is great trouble, there is usually great need. And one of the great marks of the Christian community throughout history is their sacrificial generosity during times like this. So I do pray that you would take care of your needs without question. If you have needs, let us know. But that you would also make sure you are meeting needs in your circle of influence. Because the truth is, is you are at a you have a sphere of life that only you are in. That I, I will never be in, and I have a sphere of life that you will never be in, that is mine. And those are the places where we, we really want to apply what God meant for good in these weeks that are ahead of us. And so I thank you for being with us here today. Uh, I'm super stoked to have brought you Easter and what is probably experientially the most accurate Easter that has ever existed. We are literally scattered in our homes, maybe feeling alone, but not, actually are not alone because of this beautiful truth that we've spoken about today. And I pray that this week you would live in this, not just hear about it, that you would live in this. And that as you would go, you would let this grace that we've discussed today truly be a power in your home. And as you go, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the power of His Holy Spirit, and the fellowship of His, his uh, excuse me, the power of God and the fellowship of His Holy Spirit be with you all. Go in peace. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. Peace and blessings to you all.